Welcome, everyone. This is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of Mito Action, and it is June 4th, 2010. We're really excited about today's topic. It's of great interest to um, many people, and that's the idea of agents that are toxic or potentially harmful to the mitochondria. I'm equally excited about our speaker today, who is Dr. Catherine Sims from Massachusetts General Hospital. Um, I've known Kathy, I've been privileged to know Kathy for a couple years, and I have to say that one of, one of the things I respect most about Dr. Sims is that she has um, true compassion and interest in the clinical aspects of mitochondrial disease, but is also very knowledgeable and very up-to-date um, from the science and the research perspective as well. So whenever... Whenever you speak, Dr. Sims, I feel like it's a tremendous learning experience for all of us, and so we're really excited to have you with us today um, to talk a little bit about this. So, Dr. Sims, anything else you'd like to add to that introduction, and then we can go ahead and get started on our topic. Sure. Uh, I just might uh, introduce myself a, a little bit so you know what my perspective is. I'm trained as a pediatric neurologist, and as Christy said, I work at Mass General, but I do work there as a neurogeneticist and a translational researcher, and I see all ages of patients. Uh, from the very young to the very old. Um, I direct the neurogenetics clinic and mitochondrial disorders clinic where we try to assist with diagnosis, management, and consult as needed. I also am the PI on a mitochondrial clinical registry and biorepository, which is a resource for translational research, and I'm privileged to sit on the uh, medical advisory committee uh, for the MitoAction group. And Christy asked me to talk about a topic which is big, extensive, uh, and a challenge, but I'll try to do the best I can. I'm not going to review uh, much of the history of the mitochondria because it's not really the focus, except I'll remind us all that, that the human diseases associated with primary mitochondrial problems were not really recognized until the late 1980s and into the early 1990s. So this is not very long ago, and we're still learning a great deal about the biology and the pathobiology of organelle and how it relates to human disease. And that makes it equally difficult, of course, to understand what the potential toxicities might be from various agents on an organelle that we yet fully don't understand. I think, in general, the goal in terms of thinking about potential toxins should be the, <clears throat> the same as the goal as currently in most clinical practices, and that is to optimize the management for the, from the patient's point of view. And in this regard, to identify potential toxins, to be generally observant, and to try to begin to uh, register these observations in an organized fashion. And I'll, I'll get back to that in the very end. Um, and, of course, we treat symptoms of these disorders, and in so doing, we use a lot of agents, and uh, we have to be very responsible and observant about the things we're prescribing and using to treat the symptoms to try to avoid uh, aggravating the situation. Uh, with that said, I think I'll just let you know that I'm going to try to summarize what we, the big we, the research community and uh, clinicians who are reporting things and writing on mitochondrial disease, as well as some of my own experience, what we and really I think all of this will highlight, unfortunately, uh, what we don't know, and that is a large amount of what exists in the literature and anecdotally in regards to uh, mitochondrial toxins. There are, of course, many reasons uh, to need to think about this, and as I said, the primary one is that we do make pharmacologic interventions. We use drugs of a variety of sorts, and we use cofactors that we think will help the mitochondrial patient syndrome symptoms. I'm sorry, and and or to treat comorbid disease, meaning other diseases that may not be directly related to uh, oxidative phosphorylation disease. So we all are in the position, any physician or patient or parent or family member, of, of trying to balance the need for pharmacological intervention with the risk of potential toxicity, both known and unknown. Um, there are a number of um, categories of disorders which I might go through, but before I do that, I'm just going to try to highlight some of the mechanisms of toxicity that we know about and that we're concerned about and that really are what we're trying to measure or understand in the context of 
medications, cofactors, and environmental factors. So any of these things can be toxic if they inhibit the electron transport chain in any fashion. If they disrupt it, if they uh, <clears throat> disrupt uh, uh, production of it or stability of this chain uh, because the bottom line is that when the electron transport chain doesn't work well, oxidative phosphorylation is not as efficient and as effective and that's obviously the main <coughs> cellular component of cellular energy failure and uh, presumably clinical symptoms. In addition, toxins may increase reactive oxygen species and these themselves will then go on to potentially impair electron transport chain, uh, protein transport, and a wide variety of other essential functions for the mitochondria. I might take just a moment, and I know I don't have much time and I don't want this to be so technical, but um, there are many ways that oxygen radicals, damaging ones, are formed, and there are therefore many areas in this complex metabolism which may be potential targets for toxins. Um, really, oxygen itself can become a free radical and a very dangerous one, and so the balance between oxygen supply and oxygen utilization at the cellular level is very, very critical. Um, if who is not appropriately handled either because the various enzymes that are working to take O2 to water, where it's not um, dangerous, obviously, uh, if the glutathione peroxidase or selenium or the different uh, uh, superoxide dismutases aren't working well, that, that pathway is dysfunctional and uh, very serious free radical production may ensue. This then can go on in the context of iron overload or even iron administration to produce other free radicals, which can be quite dangerous. The mitochondria also has a very active system, a synthase uh, enzyme, which produces nitric oxide, and, and there can be free radicals generated from this process, which make particularly complex ones vulnerable. A pretty brief overview of free radical damage, but it's probably one of the major ways in which the mitochondria is injured by other agents. And when there is free radical injury, that makes a variety of cellular components vulnerable to dysfunction and damage, and that includes the lipids, and lipids are very important in all cell membranes, proteins, to the oxidative phosphorylation enzymes themselves, and even to the mitochondrial DNA. So once there's free radical damage, these very critical cellular components, then you can go on to see increasing cellular energy requirements and a kind of cascade of energy failure. Uh, so enough of the biology. <laughs> it's helpful, though. You know, it is helpful. I think it's always something that um, we, are, we don't ever have the time to really sit down with our doctor and get a little biology lesson. And for right. any of us who don't have a background in science, those those reviews are sometimes really helpful and illuminating. So thank you. Sure. And I think the bottom line is is that every component of mitochondrial function is a, a very complex organ. It does lots of things. It's potentially vulnerable to injury in one way or another. And maybe the core of what I'm going to say, I'll say in a few moments, I'm just going to highlight some of the medicines and some of the other things that we, we know or we think we know do have the potential for doing that, maybe a little bit about how they do that, and therefore why we should use them cautiously or even avoid them as and find alternatives. Um, clearly, the issue of toxicity is one about balancing treatment needs with uh, side effects. And, you know, one of the, um, the very culprits um, that we're all being made aware of, and I think someone mentioned as they called in, is the, the toxicity of the statins, and we'll talk about that. Kathy, let me interrupt you really quickly and just remind everyone that if you have any background noise, I do ask you to use star six to mute your phone so that you can uh, just hear Kathy as well as she sends as well as possible. So thank you. Okay, keep going. And then the other thing that we all need to, to, to realize is that this is a um, this is a vastly under understood area of biology and pathobiology and we all have to be very observant and uh, recognize that toxicity may be um, exacerbated in uh, other medical problems or underlying problems as they're being treated. So 
both are, um, the organs of the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, the autonomic nervous system, and heart, liver, kidney, all themselves may be in need of pharmacologic management, and that may hurt the mitochondria, or they themselves may be targets of uh, organ failure if mitochondrial function um, is not adequate. And uh, I don't think there's a single system in our body which is spared the sort of bidirectional risk. So now I might try to go into um, talking about some of the specific agents, and I've tried to divide these by categories. And the categories I've outlined, I'll just tell you ahead of time, the pharmacologic agents, things that are prescribed, anesthetics, surgery itself, the environment, diet, stress-related, endogenous, factors and the mitochondrial cofactors themselves. So I'll try to go through those quickly but clearly, and I might highlight that I've made myself a table which I'll make available to Christy to put up on the web, so you don't need to write all this down. Hopefully there aren't too many errors there, and we can correct them if we need. One of the challenges uh, to, a, to really understanding mitochondrial toxicity is that um, as of now, as far as I know, mitochondrial toxicity testing is not required by the FDA for any drug approval. So the whole large mechanism of FDA oversight and testing is, is not really directed toward trying to identify agents which, which might evidence or might actually have significant toxicity. So it's left uh, to us out in the field, both patients and clinicians. Um, the other general thing I say is that I'm going to mention some agents here. Um, there is no co absolute contraindication as far as most experts are concerned for any of these agents, but they certainly uh, may be highlighted and probably should be avoided. And then um, one last summary comment. Um, the potential toxicities can kind of come in two flavors. They can be either direct. So they, these agents or environmental factors might inhibit, for example, DNA transcription, or they might damage the electron transport chain components, or they might inhibit uh, the enzymes of glycolysis or beta oxidation. They could also be indirect, and I've kind of referenced that already, so they could, the injury could increase free radicals, which itself would go on to create further injury. Uh, the toxins might decrease endogenous antioxidants, so the body makes glutathione and it makes coenzyme T10 by, by itself, but agents may decrease that production and thereby affect uh, mitochondrial function. And they might indirectly deplete the body of nutrients or other factors which are necessary for ETC and oxidative phosphorylation function. So now to the categories. The first one is really pharmacologic, and this is maybe the major one since it's one that we do have some control over. Um, the anticonvulsants um, in general are well tolerated as far as we know. The only one that really comes through for as being potentially toxic is valparate or depakote. And this does a number of things. Um, it sequesters carnitine, and carnitine is important in uh, fatty acid oxidation and in the uh, binding to and detoxifying of uh, ACOA. It also, valparate also decreases fatty acid oxidation directly. It decreases Krebs cycle functioning and the electron transport chain activity. And it may even have specific complex for inhibitory components. And the clinical features of dysfunction in this regard are usually uh, hepatopathy, meaning liver dysfunction. Doesn't mean that valparate can't be used, and it's an excellent drug for certain types of seizures and behavior, but um, one has to watch carefully for liver problems and certainly has to replete and give the patient carnitine. There are a number of psychotropic medications of a number of sorts, which I'll go through, which have been um, anecdotally uh, and sometimes in small studies recognized as toxic. So within the group of antidepressants, uh, amitriptyline, fluoxetine, or Prozac, citalopram, or citalopramil are both, uh, are all thought to be potentially toxic. Within the antipsychotics, um, Polixin, Haldol, Risperidol, Thorazine have all been reported to cause mitochondrial fail failure or difficulties. The barbiturates themselves are a problem. Phenobarbital, which might be used as an anticonvulsant, or the other barbiturates, which might be used in sedation, like sicanol, uh, or even furanol, uh, medicine that's sometimes used for migraine. These seem to inhibit, do a variety of things. They inhibit NAD, 
dehydrogenase, which is, an, is a component of complex one. They reduce mitochondrial protein synthesis, and they seem to decrease the number and size and presumably function of mitochondria. The anxiety medications, Xanax, Valium, and uh, even Dysat, have been uh, of some concern, although the studies uh, are not very rigorous in that regard. The cholesterol medicines, and particularly the statins, and that's all statins, no, not one known to be more toxic than the other, reduce endogenous coenzyme Q10 uh, production. So the statins block cholesterol production, but in that same pathway, further down the line is the production of uh, coenzyme Q10. So in this context, people with primary mitochondrial disease might be more vulnerable to statins, and we've seen a number of patients who did not have primary mitochondrial disease but had significant uh, injury to the mitochondria to the extent of mitochondrial inclusions, uh, although they had no underlying mitochondrial problem. So the statins, which often give myalgias or muscle aches or even myopathy to patients, don't if you respond and have problems with it, it doesn't necessarily mean you have a primary mitochondrial disorder, but that for some reason uh, your mitochondria may be more vulnerable than others, although maybe everyone suffers to some extent in the face of those medicines. Uh, the bile acid uh, binders, cholestyramine and ciprofibrate, uh, also have been implicated in inhibition of the electron transport chain. The, in the an analgesic and anti-inflammatory category, uh, acts inhibit EPC, the electron transport chain, and uncouples oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, in the worst scenario, it leads to hepatic failure or so-called Rye syndrome. Uh, Tylenol, acetaminophen, and this is a medication that is in many, many, many medicines over the counter. Um, it increases oxidative stress and can often lead to uh, hepatic failure. Uh, Indocin and Aleve also have been implicated. In the antibiotics world, the most uh, notable uh, uh, toxins are tetracycline and minocycline. Uh, these seem to in inhibit beta oxidation and also mitochondrial protein synthesis. Uh, chloramphenicol has been indicated in, implicated in the inhibition of mitochondrial protein synthesis. Then there are some drugs that maybe are less uh, used within the mitochondrial popu patient population but are important. Amadirone, and I may not pronounce that right, is an antiarrhythmic for ventricular tachycardia and it inhibits beta oxidation uh, quite significantly. Uh, steroids themselves may reduce transmembrane mitochondrial potential and cause problems. Antiviral agents, uh, interferon in particular, impairs mitochondrial DNA transcription. Uh, the antiretroviral agents, those that would be used in HIV-AIDS, like zidovidine, uh, also cause significant uh, mitochondrial problems and failure. They impair mitochondrial DNA replication, leading to anti-DNA depletion. They also de deplete and decrease complex 1 and 4 activity. They can lead to significant uh, carnitine deficiency, like dystrophy, myopathy, hepatic failure, peripheral neuropathy in that population, uh, often mimicking primary mitochondrial disease. The cancer medicines don't get off without um, a note as toxic, although these are obviously used only in special cases, and their use may be indicated from the uh, anti-tumor uh, point of view and uh, used despite their effect on the mitochondria. Um, the diabetes medicines, metformin in particular, which is used uh, sometimes for type 2 diabetes, is uh, mitochondrial toxic. It inhibits oxfos and it also enhances glycolysis, leading to lactic acidosis. And the beta blockers have been indicated, implicated in possible oxidative stress and uh, reports of decreased exercise tolerance. But again, I might stress, and that's kind of the list that I have, um, that one always has to balance the needs for the use of these medicines against the potential toxicity, and they're not obligately ruled out. And I'm going to be real fast because I know we have questions. Um, the anesthetic, the literature is really mixed, and much of it is anecdotal, and it's hard to know. But I think the general consensus at this point is that um, anesthetics of all sorts, particularly the volatile anesthetics, the ones that you inhale, uh, 
increase the sensitivity in, uh, to these. Uh, mitochondrial disease increases the sensitivity to these. So in a way, they're not necessarily toxic, but they require uh, more managed care uh, so as not to have extended and prolonged wake-ups. Uh, even propofol, a very commonly used uh, intravenous uh, 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 anesthetic, uh, has been associated with some problems, although it seems to be safe when it's used for short course of uh, anesthesia, 30 to 60 minutes. Um, surgery itself is a, a giant metabolic stress, and as with all mitochondrial disorders, one's trying to avoid that, but surgery is often necessary, so it's very critical to monitor acid-base status because acidosis is a downhill and um, uh, cascading problem for the mitochondrial patient. It's very important to avoid fasting because fasting itself is a toxic uh, stress on the mitochondria and the importance of using uh, dextrose IV fluids can't be underestimated in order to deter metabolism uh, and uh, the cascade that, uh, that may ensue from that. Uh, the third category of toxins, the environmental ones, some of those are controllable, most are probably non-controllable. The ones we know that we have some control are, are tobacco smoke, whether it's primary or secondarily uh, inhaled, uh, alcohol itself is toxic, rhodonone and other uh, fumes, including paints, varnishes, hair dyes, toluene, all of these fat-soluble chemicals with benzene rings, which may be are toxic to mitochondrial function, and I'm sure there are many unrecognized toxins that we're exposed to all the time. The fourth category, diet. Uh, the ketogenic diet is often used for uncontrollable seizure problems. This is uh, probably reasonably well tolerated in most, although can be a big stress on beta oxidation, which is often secondarily impaired in those with uh, primary oxidative phosphorylation disorders, so it's best to uh, have a clear idea of uh, beta oxidation status before using this, and its um, its use is probably uh, most uh, appropriately used in uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase disorder. One certainly wants to avoid deficient diets, so diet needs to be rich, normally rich in pyridoxine and iron, copper, zinc, riboflavin, all of these very important to uh, organ function, particularly to uh, hematopoietic synthesis. One wants to avoid fasting because this is a catabolic stressor. Hyperglycemia itself can be a toxin. It leads to uh, increased superoxide production, in, particularly in the endothelium, in the vascular lining, and this can lead to vascular endotheliopathy and stroke-like and uh, many of the complications that one sees maybe more prominently in the diabetic population but may see in the mitochondrial population. And there are a whole host of uh, um, food substances that are, or substances that are located in foods that are called cyanogens. I don't know a lot about this, but they're found in peas and beans and legumes, almonds, other nuts and apricots, and they, uh, like cigarette smoke, um, can be uh, toxic to the mitochondria. Uh, the next category is the endogenous stress-related chemicals, adrenalines, catecholamines, testosterone. They've all been implicated, not well studied. It's hard to know whether um, that data can ever be fully elaborated, but it is uh, worth being aware that there probably are chemical mediators for uh, stress-related release that is injurious to the mitochondria. And the last group are the mitochondrial cofactors themselves, which we use in pretty high dose, and maybe other nutraceuticals. Uh, the the um, coenzyme Q10 itself can become a pro-oxidant. That means it can itself be an oxygen radical and cause trouble. Um, and it itself has a physiologic signaling role, which may be disrupted if uh, dosing is too high. Uh, riboflavin can cause GI distress, as can L-carnitine and L-arginine. L-arginine, which is used sometimes acutely in strokes in mitochondrial disease, uh, can needs to be watched carefully when used intravenously. It can be good health. Studies have shown that, but you can see significant hypotension and electrolyte changes that need to be monitored. And, and what else do I have? And I think that's what I have in terms of the specifics. And maybe I should say a couple of concluding things, and then we'll open it up to questions. 
the help of cancer. So in conclusion, I say there really are some clear toxins, things that we know are not well tolerated uh, and lead to direct mitochondrial dysfunction. And we have some idea of how, how those work pathobiologically. They exacerbate symptoms in the patient, and they can even lead to very profound acute events that should be avoided, if at all possible. There are many more on that list that I went through that are just suspected or anecdotally. It's difficult to prove. And it, it, again, highlights the importance of careful use when you use these agents. You don't have to totally avoid them, but use them carefully, make good observations, try to add one agent at a time, keep good records, and maybe discuss um, with any new physicians, especially if they're going to be prescribing medications, these whole lists and at least introduce them to the topic of potential pharmacologic toxicity, particularly to anesthesiologists. And the fourth thing I'd say is we're really, we would like to, and I'm saying this out loud so maybe we start to do this, try to include some of the drug reaction data in our registry, uh, this over and above the just general clinical symptomatology, uh, because at some point we need to have a better handle on uh, how these agents are affecting patients and what the extent of the problems are uh, so we can begin to try to do some better design studies. Thanks for listening. Wow, what a what a bunch of wonderful information that you just packed into a, a excellent presentation, Kathy, and I'm really excited that you have a table to share with us also because I'm sure that that would be hard to um, to follow and reproduce without that, and so that will be very helpful, I think, for folks. I guess my my first question before we open the questions up for everyone is. Um, if you if you were just talking in generalities to a adult mitochondrial disease patient or to a child, um, the parent of a child with mitochondrial disease, what's your general recommendation then? Because there are so many pitfalls. There are so many, and so I think you know. And this is I. I think it's not reflecting my ignorance. I think it's reflecting what we as a large community don't yet know and don't have enough data on. And, and it is hard data to get. But most of these reports are very small. They're anecdotal reports. They're small reports. There's been some studies with some. In that case, we know more. And that leads us to, to know we really have to be careful, for example, in using Valparate, and that we have to be careful with anesthetics and the surgery that goes along with them in, in managing that situation. Um, on the other hand, that long list of psychotropic medications, you know, probably are well tolerated by many, many people with mitochondrial disorder. And if you need, in order to help a person stabilize or have a good quality of life, um, it's, it's not a contraindication to, to, to using these agents. It's more about a call for good observation and good record keeping and trying to make I mean, really, this is the most important thing, I think, is make changes one at a time, whether you're adding something or taking something, uh, so that the clinician that's trying to sort out the engine clinical situation has some idea of what may be the offending agent. Because so many of these agents in uh, pharmacologic medicines we have to use to help the patient some of the environmental and other agents we don't know about, uh, they're toxic, we can't control our exposure to them anyway. So, it, you know, it's, it's the medicines we, we uh, have most control of and need to pay attention to their effects. If you can. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so um, shall we try to take some questions from the group then? Uh, similar to the way that we did introductions, We'll just be respectful of one another and try to just um, jump in and ask a question. If you are comfortable doing so, uh, please introduce yourself briefly again before asking the question. And the other thing I urge all of you to do is um, I know that many of you have very specific questions that um, may be about specific medications or specific doses or circumstances. Um, but in this case, with the group, Please try to phrase your question in such a way so that it's more general and then is helpful to many people who are listening at this time. So, um, and finally, if you have a question that you would not feel comfortable asking or if for some reason you would be more inclined to have me ask the question out loud for you, you can email that question to me at director at mitoaction.org. 
So uh, who would like to ask a question? I would. Go ahead. Dr. Thank you so much. That was amazing. I was um, I was on Prozac for 17 years and went off of it, and three months later I started sensory neuropathy. And over a period of two years, I was treated with different things. Lyrica could not handle it, had an adverse reaction. Neurotin tried it for three days, had an adverse reaction. And then amitriptyline. And I was on that for one month last Thanksgiving and cut it down to five milligrams a day. And that is when my mitochondria cut loose. And they found out I had a carnitine deficiency. And um, But the big thing that amitriptyline did was it killed all the muscle tissue in my legs or muscle strength and my brain. Can I recover from this? That's a good question, and maybe I can generalize it because I'm not sure that I can answer it specifically in regard to those particular agents. Um, you know, some of the toxic effects uh, are, do seem to be reversible, um, even those that are quite profound. So I wouldn't give up all hope that there can't be some recovery. Um, in general, neurologic recovery uh, depends on the degree of injury. So if the tissue say in the central nervous system is so injured or a cascade effect has been started that cells are actually lost. That's very difficult uh, to recover, you know, that cell and therefore some of the cell function. Although the brain plasticity is still there, even in adults, and there can be some rewiring, reworking. The mitochondria itself, and I didn't go into this, but one of the other important aspects of mitochondrial function is it has a big role to play in what's called apoptosis, which is uh, uh, regulated or unregulated cell death. So um, there can be disruption in the control of those pathways when the mitochondria is not working well or when it's injured that may accelerate apoptosis. Um, sometimes that's noticeable because of clinical features, and other times it's noticeable because uh, maybe there's MRI changes uh, suggesting some loss of tissue. But, you know, I, I wouldn't be so pessimistic that that, that uh, one wouldn't hope for some recovery. Sounds like quite profound and sudden <coughs> actions in that regard, and um, it just highlights again that although uh, chronic toxicity is a problem, so is acute toxicity with some of these agents, and it may be very variable one person to another. They put me on the L-carnitine, and within five days, the sensory neuropathy that I had in my arms, legs, and feet, 80% of it went away within five days. And that's, that's very dramatic. And that tells, you know, that says that tissue, the peripheral nerves, were uh, injured to the extent that they were irritated and they were giving you uh, misinformation or no information or painful information. But the fact that uh, you were able to recover that and those cells were able to return to normal is very encouraging. It, it can say you can have a great deal of uh, dysfunction, if, but reversible if you can identify what either you're deficient in or what the actual target of the toxicity is. And, you know, measuring L-carnitine is very simple, done well in most labs. I think it should be done much more often prior to any medication change, um, making sure that it's as you know, normal as normal can be, uh, so, because many of these agents potentially affect fatty acid oxidation where you need good carnitine levels uh, and there are many things which actually affect carnitine metabolism itself. So your question highlights a lot of important areas. One more thing. After taking that amitriptyline, I started losing muscle strength in my legs and it's getting worse and worse and worse and I was only on that amitriptyline for one month. So I, I'm not aware of any reports, uh, again, it's a, you know, could be a giant literature, but available affecting muscle uh, integrity or muscle function. So, and that's a very short time, although, you know, again, anything can be acutely toxic and cause, you know, acute cell breakdown. Um, have they measured your CK, your creatine kinase in your blood? I don't know. I'll have to check. But I did, I was having the breakdown before the amitriptyline, but it was manageable. Yeah. To some degree, now it's not manageable. That's, that highlights, and if you don't mind, I'll generalize that. 
the, the problem is figuring out exactly what's happening in a situation like that, where there may be some increased vulnerability. It sounds like you are already having some myopathy features, so maybe that relates more to the primary underlying problem or to the carnitine deficiency longstanding. And, and then sometimes uh, something's a red herring. You start a medication and suddenly things get worse. When they might have, that might have happened anyway. So sometimes it's, it's putting two things together that really aren't, uh, you know, uh, uh, interacting. And, but they may be. And it may be that, that um, Elevil in this case or any drug became suddenly quite toxic in this underlying process where there was uh, already ongoing damage. Very hard to sort those two things out, whether it's the natural history of the disease or whether it's the one thing that you noticed temporarily was happening about the time things got worse. And it's hard Great to question. Thank you. Let's, yeah, let's give, move on. And, um, Thank I'm you. Sure some, yeah, I'm sure someone else has another question as well. So who can ask a question? Dr. Tendris Robert Lopez. Um, it sounds like water in the I'm sorry. I, I wasn't I'm, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I couldn't. We couldn't hear you, Robert. Could you say that again? Sounds like most of the drugs that you were mentioning earlier in your presentation were ones that were listed for or in the classification of people 50 drugs. I'm wondering if people 50 drugs are specific to mitochondrial issues. Uh, not that I know of, but that's a good question. You know, I have to confess I'm not really a neuropharmacologist or a pharmacologist. Um, I, I'll try to find that out. I hadn't uh, really noticed that. Um, certainly uh, many, many, many medicines, in fact, P450, and uh, it's a very central controller uh, of organ function and might be very central to mitochondria. I just don't know that. I'll check. Thank you. Um, all right, another question for Dr. Sim. Dr. Sim, this is Allison Park. Uh-huh. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask you, you had touched on steroids. Uh-huh. And just wanted to know, um, my daughter takes inhaled steroid every day for asthma. Mm-hmm. Is that... Uh, I wouldn't so much worry about that. And not to say that you can't get uh, some degree of systemic steroids, you know, circulating steroids, but uh, the beauty of inhaled steroids is that they uh, go right to the target tissue, the bronchial tree and to the pulmonary vas, you know, tissue. So um, you're talking more um, oral. Oral, where you're, t- you're exposing the entire body. Okay, perfect. Um, Thank great you. question. Yeah, great question. All right. Um, super. Another question? I'd like to ask about Cofutendo. Sure. Uh, this is Irina Campbell. And it was mentioned briefly that overdosing, yeah. <laughs> after high doses, CoQ10 could cause trouble. So what would be the upper limit for CoQ10? Well, that's a good question. So the, the, the larger studies that have been done, you probably know this, use uh, kind of 10 to 20 milligrams per kilogram per day, and that seems to be safe. There has been a, one short study, but maybe it is a helpful uh, bit of information, where they actually used, uh, in a small group of patients, 60 milligrams per kilogram per day. But the follow-up was only in a few months' time. Uh, there was one withdrawal because of some kind of acute problems, but otherwise it was pretty well tolerated. But that was really a short-term study. Um, I, I would think, and I haven't found people when I push the dose up above 20 milligrams per kilogram, they don't really tolerate well. It is a, a big sleep disruptor. Um, so I, and again, it depends what preparation you're using. That dosing I just gave you is for ubiquinol. For ubiquinol, which is a more lipid-solid, soluble preparation, the dosing's much less, maybe 10 milligrams per kilogram max, and more commonly, 6 to 8. So I, again, I don't think any careful uh, studies have been done looking at upper limits long-term. Uh, these are kind of uh, general figures that people have settled on, uh, probably because of anecdotal response uh, and, and sometimes just because of hesitancy to go higher. Um, All right, great. And Dr. Sims, let's visit anesthesia for a minute, um, because that's an area that I think is so important. and. Um, I know in working with many adult patients and families that sometimes that anesthesia tends to be a trigger also mm-hmm. for a cascade of symptoms that weren't there prior to that. So what are the, you know, the top few things to consider or discuss 
with uh, your your doctor or your anesthesiologist when having the surgery? Well, I think um, the first thing is to be sure to talk to the anesthesiologist uh, and highlight the clinical issues um, and help educate them if they're not knowledgeable or push them to learn something about this because you need their help. Um, and, and that's because uh, adjusting the dose, maybe adjusting the doses down of the necessary agents is prudent because we do know there's increased sensitivity, not in everyone, but most. Um, making some choices about which agents, so sevoflurane, for example, might be better tolerated in people than isoflurane or halothane. Those, meds, those anesthetics aren't used a lot anymore. The, the IV anesthetics are used for most short-term anesthesia, and they seem to be less problematic. So, you know, my reading of the literature and my own experience says those are all very important things, but I think the most important thing, and it is highlighted in some of the literature, is the actual maintenance of appropriate acid-base balance and the avoidance of fasting. That means not, you know, being scheduled for surgery at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and having been NPO since midnight before without an IV and without glucose. Um, it's really critical. And, it's, and if they're thinking about this, they're going to avoid that fasting. They're going to put the IV with glucose in. They're going to monitor the electrolytes and the acid-base status, keep the patient, the person non-acidotic in good balance, and I think that that, that maximizes um, uh, the tolerance to anesthesia and surgery and, you know, bodes well for the outcome. It doesn't mean there won't be idiosyncratic responses to some of these agents where someone, you know, just does not tolerate that agent. Um, but I think in general, large population data, you do better if the anesthesiologist pays attention to acid-base balance, avoids fasting, puts in the, the D510 the day before possible, or certainly as soon as the patient arrives at surgical daycare or in the, in the hospital, you know, make some choices about better anesthetic agents that might be better tolerated. Did that answer your question? Absolutely. Great, great response. Thank you. Um, we have time for a couple more questions. Who else has a question? I have a question. How does the mitochondrial enzyme, M-A-O-A, relate to a mitochondrial disorder? Uh, that's a good question. So you're referencing monoamine oxidase A. Um, which is a very, very important, uh, as is MAOB, very important in uh, neurotransmitter uh, metabolism and catabolism. Um, it happens to be very active in the mitochondria, and I don't think we know if it has a direct role to play in any of the primary mitochondrial disorders. Um, it has itself been implicated in a wide variety of clinical um, problems, including behavioral and aggressive problems. Um, it's also been identified in patients with predation and seizures. But as far as I know, um, and we know it's important uh, in that the function, I don't think it's been uh, looked at or identified as a component of mitochondrial failure problems. Okay, thank you very much. Sure. Okay, great questions, um, you know, and, and information. So, um, anyone else have a question they'd like to ask? Yes, I have two. Okay. Uh, Go ahead, the first please. one is I've seen um, in some websites ciprofloxacin, uh, the use uh, of an antibiotic in the ear, uh -huh. and also the use of diuretics, are there any of the diuretics that are uh, mitotoxic? Uh, your last one first. Uh, not not describe the diuretics. Of course, um, fluid balance, uh, particularly in the context of autonomic dysfunction in in um, of mitochondrial patients, might make diuretics problematic from a you know sort of hydration intravascular volume point of view. Um, but I'm not aware that they are thought to be directly toxic to the mitochondria. Just might make in good blood pressure or adjusting to, you know, the dysautonomia or dysautonomic function more difficult if you're, um, you know, running on a very uh, tightly constrained hydration status with diuretics. 
Um, the other, I, I don't know that that antibiotic has been um, described as toxic. It, I don't, do you know what class of antibiotic it is? Is it, is it um, in the aminoglycoside category? I don't know. It's called ciprofloxacin. Ciprofloxacin. Well, I don't know either, but I can look that up. I did, you know, that reminds me, I did not put uh, aminoglycosides on my little list, which are clearly potentially uh, mitochondrial toxic and have been associated in particular uh, molecular diagnosis um, with acute hearing loss. So I apologize for not putting those uh, category of drugs on my list. I'll have to look up citrofloxacin. That's C-I-P. R-O. Okay. But you, they, they call it Cipro for short. Cipro, yes. Yes, yes, yes. I don't think that's an amino glycoside, but um, I'll check, too, if there's been any uh, reports of toxicity. I didn't see any in my review recently. Okay, thank you. And uh, great. And I think we have um, time for either two short or one more <laughs> question. So uh, okay. we have a short. I have a short one. Okay. Hi, Dr. Sims. This is Janelle from St. Louis Adult Mito Patient. And you had mentioned a couple of over-the-counter pain relievers, um, such as aspirin and Tylenol and Aleve, uh-huh. that might be considered toxic. Is there anything you recommend for mito patients for over-the-counter pain <laughs> that's, that's a good question. There's practically nothing left, right? Take all the NSAIDs out and the Tylenol and aspirin. Um, I, again, I, I think if there's a good reason to use these, using them cautiously is reasonable. Um, you know, we try not to use aspirin uh, in, you know, young patients in general, pediatric patients in general, and I think that's wise to avoid. But the, the NSAS and um, Tylenol we do use, uh, just aware that they may cause some trouble, uh, and particularly if there are signs of had injury, of course, we stop. Okay, thank you. I think the challenge with that is that, um, you know, for a mitochondrial disease patient, you really want to avoid fever at all costs. And so it's a, it's a, a trade-off, would you say, Dr. Sims, between we don't want to have the fever and we don't want to, def- we don't want to have anything that causes mitochondrial toxicity, but um, we need those medicines in order to, you know, avoid that to help bring down the fever. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point, Christy. What about lower back steroid injections? Um, again, I believe that those are thought to be quite local in distribution. That's why they're doing it that way. So I would think uh, if it's indicated, it would be a reasonable choice, um, not expected to cause systemic problems. Thank you. Dr. Sims, for some people that... Uh, can't avoid use of some of these things or um, even, you know, exposure to some of the other toxins that you discussed because they were they were lengthy. Um, what do you feel like are some good practices to kind of help boost the mitochondria function, if you will, so that we can help combat the stress of some of those agents? Sure. And um, maybe people have their own list, their favorite uh, mito cocktails. But I think in general the consensus is that one's using some, some core agents, and that would include coenzyme Q10, uh, L-carnitine, uh, probably um, the, some of the B vitamins, at least uh, B2 and maybe B6. Uh, and some mix of antioxidants, so vitamin C, vitamin E are both good antioxidants, are, as is uh, alpha-lipoic acid. I found some selenium deficiency, surprisingly, in many of my patients, and selenium is an important uh, cofactor for glutathione peroxidase, which is a very important endogenous antioxidant. So I do check selenium, and uh, if deficient, uh, certainly include that in the in the um, cocktail with the notion that you're trying to, in sort of impaired fashion, push the whole system to work a little bit better and give it the tools that it needs. Um, you know, do that without much logic evidence that you know exactly where the pro- problem is. And uh, But I think it's worth uh, trying that and in, in conjunction with trying to decrease metabolic and catabolic stress in general. Mm-hmm. All right, that's that's great advice, and that kind of brings us to the the close. And um, you know, I think that what's also important here is that um, 
it's, it's a real challenge because every patient with mitochondrial disease is different. And it's difficult because um, the symptoms for each patient are different, and I think the body's response to medications and, you know, susceptibility to um, respond negatively to things that could be considered toxic is really so individual and so variable and difficult to predict that I agree with what you said earlier, um, Dr. Sims, which is to kind of proceed with caution one thing at a time with many of these ideas because um, you just don't know, right? You just can't say, oh, every person with mitochondrial disease is going to respond this way to this. Exactly. Exactly. So it requires careful, individualized uh, thought, observation, trial and error a little bit sometimes to find the most optimal way to manage real problems that you, you've got to address. Um, well, this has been extremely helpful, and I have a feeling that the summary that we put um, online will also be extremely helpful and will be something that is informative not only to patients, but will help, I think, be a bridge for conversations um, with their physicians as well, because, um, as you mentioned, this is just unfortunately not um, mainstream knowledge at this point, and, and our hope is that by having this discussion and we can start to bridge that gap even just starting at a grassroots level from the patients out, out um, at this point. Uh, Kathy, is there anything else in closing that you would like to say? Hey, I, I will. See, I'll also send you a couple of references that I think are pretty good, and maybe those can attach to some. That would be great. Yeah, that would be great. We'll definitely do that. Anything other, any other comments that you'd like to share in closing? We're so grateful for you. Oh, well, my pleasure. And, and uh, you know, I... If people see errors or they want to send me <laughs> or send Christy, um, you know, observations or different information, I think this is a work in progress for all of us. So um, everybody's help is much appreciated and uh, editing is uh, also valuable. So that's, a, that's a great point. I think any of that kind of feedback, you can just email to me, director at mitoaction.org, and then, Kathy, we can regroup on those things and post the updates on the website. and. On behalf of everyone who was listening in today and all the people who will listen in to the recording, thank you so much, um, Dr. Sims. You're really excellent and, and information that I know I had not heard before, so I'm very grateful that I've had you as our speaker today. So everyone will join me in thanking Dr. Sims for her time today. So thank you so much, Kathy. Bye. Have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> All right. So, everyone, I'm going to uh, wrap up our recording, and then we can stay on for a few more minutes. All right? Bear with me one second.